Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. I'm Ayan Shirwa. In April of this year, Sudan's president Omar al-Bashir resigned. This should have brought good news for the Sudanese people. Instead, the transitional military government has been in power ever since. This week on Accent of Women, I speak to Ray Ismail and Abuk Naideng to learn more about Sudan's uprising. Later in the episode, I speak with Bakhti Puvanantharan, the managing editor at Crikey, to discuss last week's AFP raids. But first up, Ray Ismail. So, my name is Rafi Ismail. Um, I'm a refugee and a third culture youth of the Sudanese diaspora. I'm a student and an emerging multicultural writer. Um, I was winner of the 2017 Deborah Cast Prize for Writing and a finalist for um, the 2018 WA Youth Awards. And yeah, I've been Australia since 2003. Who is Omar al-Bashir and how did he come into power? Um, so Omar al-Bashir is Sudan's former president. Um, he came into power um, via a military coup in 1989, um, and there were mass protests across the nation um, when he was a, he was a colonel in the military at the time. And when he came into power, there were mass protests around the nation. One of the largest was actually in 1995. Um, but as a result of these protests. Uh, all of his opposition were imprisoned, killed, or forced to, fr- to flee. Um, under Omar al-Bashir's uh, rule, Sudan became a military dictatorship. Um, it became an Islamist military dictatorship. Sharia law was enforced on the entire country. Um, and when I'm speaking about Sudan, that Sudan, um, that was a Sudan that contained both North and South. Um, South Sudan gained independence in 2011. Um, but uh, before that, there was um, a war was officially declared in, Dar- in Darfur in 2003. Um, and in 2009, the International Criminal Court had issued an arrest warrant for Al Bashir and 52 people in his cabinet. Um, that was unprecedented because he was um, the very first um, sitting president to be. Uh, issued with an arrest warrant to be indicted by the International Criminal Court. Um, and that, w- that indictment was for genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity. Mm. Um, and what happened, um, bringing it closer to 2018 or 2019, um, Omar al-Bashir was ousted. What happened after that? Um, so when al-Bashir was ousted, um, a transitional military council um, came into power. Um, the transitional military council um, is basically an extension of the Bashir regime. It's a continuation of the Bashir regime. Um, like the second of the transitional military council and the person, the general of the Sudanese uh, response forces at this point in time is Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo, um, or Hameti, who is 
is like um, the leader of the Janjaweed, who are um, a militia, a, a militia that has committed horrendous war crimes in Darfur, um, and have now been legitimized as the rapid response force in Sudan, um, attacking civilians. And the civilians are mainly peaceful protesters. So the army or the security forces have always been sort of like his muscle. Why do you think the army pushed Bashir to resign? Well, that was because of the um, pressure from the mass protests. Unlike in the West, where um, armies are like extensions of the government, um, in countries like Sudan, the army can often act independently, and it often does if there's enough pressure. And the protests that have been going on since the 19th of December 2018 were widespread enough um, across all of Sudan, all of North Sudan, to the point where um, Bashir was pushed out um, and the Transitional Military Council was put into place. Um, unfortunately, as I said before, the Transitional Military Council is just a continuation of the Bashir regime, and protesters are actually asking for a civilian government. From my research into Sudan, um, it's been said that the protest is a response to the hike in prices of bread and fuel. But is there more to that story? Absolutely. Um, unfortunately, sometimes things need to be made palatable for the global West. And so protests have been um, summarized um, as just um, the rise of prices for bread and fuel, which does a disservice to the protester there. Um, people weren't just protesting um, the rise in bread and fuel, but there was a, the constant war on genocide, the culmination of 30 years' struggle, um, the 30 years of oppression that the Sudanese people have faced, um, the austerity measures, um, like the increasing austerity measures put forward by the government um, was just an aspect of that. But we have to remember that Sudan has been independent for nearly 60 years. And in those 60 years, um, it has been mostly a dictatorship rather than democracy. And for nearly 30 years, it has been a dictatorship under um, the Bashir regime. And that's what people were protesting. They wanted a Sudan where um, they could be free, where uh, genocide wasn't a norm, where there was funding for infrastructure, there was funding for health care, for education. Um, and, yeah. And the protesters, I've seen images... I've heard the chants, but not much is known about the protesters. Who are they and what are their demands? Well, it, it's really hard to summarize who they are because there are so many protesters. A lot of the protests have been led and organized by the Sudanese Professional Association, um, which is an umbrella organization under which falls um, a lot of unions, so the doctors' unions, lawyers' unions, engineers' unions, and such. 
um, students and students' unions, um, and everyday people who just want um, a free and peaceful Sudan. The, um, the chance that were said at the very beginning of the protest in early December was Surya Salama Adala, peace, justice, and freedom. And They've also... the fact that Bashir was removed from power in a bloodless coup shows that protesters really did and really do want a peaceful transition to a civilian government. But unfortunately, um, the Transitional Military Council and the remnants of previous regimes are hindering that. Why is the military reluctant to hand over power? Well, for over 30 years, Sudan has been a military state, one with numerous war crimes committed. Like, Sudan has been under the rule of dictators far longer than it has been a democracy since independence. And if power is handed over to a civilian government, I, and this is just, my personal opinion here, but I do believe that the military would be quite um, wary of the fact that they will have to face um, justice for the crimes that they've committed over the past um, three decades. There's also been calls for an election. How will this work, and are there organized political parties who could um, step up? So it's, um, it's quite complicated. Um, when Omar Bashir was in power, he wanted an election in 2020. And that's what the Transitional Military Council offered um, in the end. Unfortunately, that's not what protesters want. Uh, we want a transitional civilian government that can implement um, emergency measures and address the situation um, right now to stabilize the country to the point where an election can be held, where political parties can assemble and be ready to hold a democratic election, where the Sudanese people are able to hold democratic participation in a democratic election. Um, let's like in the history of Sudan, in the last three decades, not a single election has been democratic. It has always been a one-party um, election. And so um, the protesters are asking for a transitional civilian government that can just um, stabilize the nation and implement emergency measures, stop the genocide in vulnerable areas, Except for the Nuba Mountains, um, the Blue Nile State, South Kurdistan, and such. Um, and, yep, stabilize the nation enough that an election can be held. Hmm. And if right now there's just, there's a lot of, there's a lot of bloodshed and the civilians and the protesters, they're not being heard. Um, what would... I don't want to say compromise, but what would be the best outcome for Sudan? Well, the the best outcome would be a um, an end to the bloodshed, 
the removal of the transitional military council and the installation of a civilian-led um, transitional government and a return to Sudan being a multi-ethnic, multicultural nation rather than an Arab Islamist military dictatorship. Like, that would be yeah, the best outcome. The unrest in Sudan didn't happen overnight. It's been years in the making. A book Nayadeng explains why we should include South Sudanese voices when discussing the current crisis. With us, we have a book Nayadeng. Um, the reason I'm chatting to a book is she made a very um, poignant post about why. I mean, putting the so she made a post about why we need to talk about all the conflicts that have happened in Sudan and not just the current one and why that's important. Welcome to Accent of Woman, a book. Thank you, Ayan. Um, yeah, happy to be here. And I just want to acknowledge that we're standing on stolen land um, and extend my um, acknowledgement to past, present and future elders. Um, so basically, I made the post out of rage and also out of confusion um, as to why nobody was talking about the genocide that is ongoing in South Sudan and disputed areas like Abye and Heglik and Darfur. Um, if you look into the um, history of Sudanese politics post-British colonialism, you will see that the North has always had the upper hand in government, in military, in healthcare, in so many different aspects and has purposely kept um, indigenous groups in the south and in western Sudan um, oppressed and marginalised. There has been ongoing genocides and this genocide did not start with Bashir's regime. It's um, been ongoing before that. Um, Many presidents have kept it ongoing and the North Sudanese people have also been complicit in um, enforcing this genocide on people. Um, when you say complicit, can you explain? Well, their silence is one of the biggest key things and it's what really infuriates a lot of us um, non-North Sudanese people that are watching at the Sudan protests because if you look at the Sudan protests, it started last year in December because bread prices had gone high and it was unaffordable and Bashir was basically not caring about his citizens. Um, but if you look at Sudan's economy and you see the reason why their economy has failed over the years is because the South gained autonomy and they weren't able to steal our resources so freely anymore, specifically oil. So this moral panic that the Sudan protests is because people are upset that Bashir is a genocidal dictator is not very much true because he didn't start being a genocidal dictator last year in December. Um, this regime has been ongoing for 35 years and the North Sudanese people have been silent and they only started speaking up when they felt the burn. And the reason why they felt the burn is because the South left. So it's a very hypocritical and very contradicting um, start. Um, but... I still stand in solidarity with the protesters and I don't condone any of the things going on right now and um, you know, I extend my love out to all the families being affected by what's going on but also we need to acknowledge that there's still people in the south and there's still people in Darfur. Like Darfur was the first 
genocide of the 21st century. And that's not being prioritized in the Sudan protests right now. The voices of these people are not being prioritized. And when we speak about these, um, I've had North Sudanese people tell me that I should just get over the past, you know, it's not their generation. But I remember, like, being in Sudan and being three years old and seeing people coming to my village with guns and shooting people, you know? Like, my father got killed in um, one of the biggest massacres in Dukpayuel where they killed over 180 people in less than two hours. And, you know, um, like, that's my generation. And um, just to see the attitude that people have not even wanting to speak about these conversations, let alone acknowledge them, is very infuriating. Does it make you feel sad? Yeah, definitely. Like, I'm really sad for Sudan as a whole. Um, it's just like, just seeing how colonial borders has, you know, displaced so much people, has, you know, so many lives have been lost over over just borders, like borders and religion and ethnicity. Like, Sudan was the most diverse country before the South split from the North. And... Sudan is very diverse, but if you look at the history, the only time people have had a voice is northerners, Arab people. um, And a majority of northerners are actually indigenous Africans. The um, fundamentalist Islamic rule by Arabs is a minority, you know, and the minority has always had a voice and always had um, their way over people. And it's just been a divide and conquer techniques so yeah it makes me sad that we've gotten this far and that we we can't move back because the south is never going to um go back with the north ever again um we voted 99 percent for our own referendum and darfur and uh, bay and um blue nile also deserve their own sovereignty as well and they are very adamant in wanting their own sovereignty as well as the people in the nuba mountains um So there's just so many different complexities to this Sudan protest and I feel like um, people aren't, the people at the front of this are not making any progress in wanting to talk about those things. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Accent of Woman. Last week, the ABC headquarters in Sydney were raided by Australian Federal Police. A day earlier... The home of News Corp journalist Annika Smithhurst had also been searched. Why did the raids happen and what do they mean for press freedom? Bhakti Puvananthara joined me to make sense of these disturbing developments. So my name is Bhakti Puvananthara and I'm managing editor of Crikey, which is an independent uh, subscriber-funded political uh, and media news website uh, based in Melbourne that we report about um, all of Australian media and politics. So the last week we've seen a number of raids by the AFP. Can you tell us what those raids were and the reasons for them? Yeah, so um, look, we haven't seen anything like this before. So I, I think the first thing I want to say is that this was a big deal. Uh, so on Monday last week, um, a News Corp journalist, political journalist, had her home raided. Her name's Anita Smithhurst. Uh, policemen and women turned up at her home and went through every single room of her house. And the reason for that is that uh, she wrote a story a couple of years ago about 
changes to the espionage laws. So um, this is a kind of, I guess, an ongoing investigation. Now, the AFP say that this is their own investigation and that, uh, that Peter Dutton and others were not involved in referring it, but um, obviously there's questions around that that it remains. And then this was followed up on, on Wednesday by a uh, seven-hour raid in the uh, at the ABC headquarters in Sydney, uh, with numerous uh, plainclothes policemen uh, attending and going through thousands and thousands of documents based on an investigation that was published uh, also, you know, several months ago uh, uh, called the Afghan Files, which exposed uh, potential military uh, misdoings in Afghanistan. So. There's a major, I guess, concern around these events from last week based on how heavy-handed they were. Mm. And you mentioned at the start that they were a big deal, but some people, well, the public might think that it only affects journalists and media corporations, Mm. but Mm. is this the case and why should the public take notice? I think the biggest problem is actually... um, not just for journalists, but for whistleblowers. So if you're if someone in a position to uh, give, you know, I guess, highly sensitive information that could embarrass the government to a journalist, you want to feel protected. And currently, that's obviously not how this government is approaching dissemination of truth. Uh, they want to pursue people um, as, as heavily as possible for embarrassing them. And that's uh, really, secret, you know, secretive, scary behaviour that is... Uh, it's not just about the journos. Like, I think sometimes journos tend to make it about themselves. It's actually about um, getting out there what the government is doing. And a lot of that comes down to whistleblowers, people within government ranks or uh, otherwise associated with government who know what they're actually doing. Mm. And whistle whistleblowers, sometimes they tend to get a bad rap for being some sort of like glorified snitches, but yeah. they are also central to democracy. How is that so? Yeah, I guess um, what we want, you know, is for anyone that sees something that they're concerned about to be able to bring it to light. So in the case of the Afghan file, this was um, a military lawyer who thought that what was happening, uh, what was being done by Australian soldiers in Afghanistan was illegal and concerning and that, you know, we all pay uh, for those soldiers to be out there. They represent uh, everyone in this country and, you know, we want to know what they're doing in our name. And we would never have found that out without that whistleblower. So there's so much information that a journalist could never get without a whistleblower and that's why they're so central to democracy. And do journalists and their sources have legal protections? So Australia does not have uh, freedom of the press enshrined in the Constitution in the way that lots of other places do. And I think a lot of this comes back to the fact that we don't have a Bill of Rights. Um, so there's lots of individual and collective freedoms and rights that we that we have coded in different ways, but there, there's no one document that says there is a right to freedom. And what we've seen in the last decade in this country are kind of more and more laws stripping away journalists' rights, we know, and, and whistleblowers' rights. We know, for example, that the government uh, has criminalised anyone who uh, who knows what's happening with asylum seekers in Manus and 
Nauru speaking out. Um, that you know they're now facing criminal penalties for for speaking out against that. So it's it's a really secretive government that we're seeing, um, and and we've seen headlines at the Washington Post and the BBC and the New York Times and, and all over the world this week asking the question, you know, how secretive is Australia now? Hmm. And going forward, if the raids increase or we see more of this, what implications will that have for society? Um, look, I think there's a there's a number of effects. The first is obviously, you know, lots of people have talked about what, what's often called a chilling effect on journalists. So basically journalists become more scared to take on the government or write a negative story about the government when they think that their home or their office might be raided or they might face arrest. Um, and that's, you know, we see that around the world in, in oppressive countries where uh, the media is not, you know, is, is either a mouthpiece of the government or um, free, free press is, is crushed. So that's where, that's the road we're going down. We're still uh, relatively lucky to have, uh, you know, some freedom, but that is being taken for granted and, and as I said, is not enshrined. So I think that we're, we're kind of walking down quite a dark road at the moment and we need to turn around and, and find that solid bill of rights, the, the kind of light, the kind of clarion calls, um, those, you know, enshrined freedoms and rights. Thank you so much, Bhakti, for appearing on Accent of Women. Thanks for having me. Accent of Women is produced in the Melbourne studios of Community Radio 3CR with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The show is distributed nationally via the Community Radio Network with special thanks to the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. We finished today's episode with a song by Nina Simone called Revolution. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Ayan Shirwa. This is louder than usual. Your organ is louder than it is at the gate. Just kind of leave it grooving by itself. Let it groove on its own thing, you know. Then when it gets in it, then you can put in some fills. But don't do it at the beginning. It's holding it back. Can we start again?
gas to stay. 